Welcome to the Banking Bonus Time Podcast. My name is Larry, and I'm your podcast host for the Community Bankers Webinar Network. This episode features ALCO expert Dale Scheller with the Baker Group, who recently recorded a complimentary webinar for our bankers entitled Interest Rate Risk Management Today. Dale is an associate partner in the Financial Strategies Group at the Baker Group. He joined the firm in 2015 after six years as a bank examiner with the FDIC. Dale holds a bachelor's degree in finance and a master's degree in business administration from Oklahoma State University. Through his work at the Baker Group, he works with clients on investment portfolio strategies, interest rate risk management, liquidity risk management, and regulatory issues. Dale regularly speaks at educational seminars nationwide and serves as a faculty member for multiple banking schools. If you want to learn more about this topic after the podcast, be sure to check out the podcast notes where you'll find a link to Dale's complimentary interest rate risk management webinar. So without further ado, let's join Dale Scheller for a Q&A about interest rate risk management today. Dale, the Fed skipped raising rates at the last meeting. Why do you suppose they did that? Are they done raising rates? That's a great question, Larry. You know, that was one that Chairman Powell got a couple of times, I believe, during his press conference that he that he has after every policy meeting that that concludes. So the Fed, real quick, they they came out. Multiple Fed members came out before the actual rate meeting concluded, the policy setting meeting concluded a couple of weeks ago, and they were all giving the rhetoric of, "Hey, this is a skip, not a pause," meaning. They wanted to leave the door open for future rate hikes, right? And so I think short answer of why they skipped is because they do see that their actions are working. Inflation is coming down. Inflation is lower. Mm -hmm. However, it's still stubbornly high and it is not Mm -hmm. to their goal of averaging 2% over time. And they know that they have to leave the door open for future rate hikes. So the other answer to your question is, no, I don't necessarily think the Fed is done with raising rates, but I do think they're getting close to that peak. Okay. Okay. Now that sounds good. So, well, another question. With the recent fast tightening cycle, isn't that good news for the interest margins? Yes and no. <laughs> um, historically, rising rate environments have been very beneficial for financial institutions. Because most institutions are what we would call asset sensitive. They are best positioned for rising rates. And a fundamental reason for this is the ability for them to lag and drag the Fed with their deposit costs. And so that concept of lagging and dragging the Fed is really, it's really the fact that when the Fed moves up 25 basis points or 50 basis points, banks don't open the, their doors tomorrow and say, hey, look, we moved every non-maturity deposit rate up 25 or 50 basis points, yeah. right? They might not even move them at all. They're going to wait until competition dictates that okay. or they start to see some pressure from their customers, from more questions asked or just funds flat out leaving. So that's a fundamental thing of why historically when rates rise, institutions see margin expansion. Now, in this current cycle, which is unlike a cycle we've seen since the early 80s, mm-hmm. we saw several quarters of record levels of margin expansion yeah. because of institutions' abilities to make loans at higher rates. You know, prime yeah. rate goes up 
one for one with the Fed. They can buy securities at higher rates. They're earning more on their cash. Right. However, the lag and drag effect kind of ran out. Institutions right. really had to increase their cost of their deposit rates at a at I don't want to say a record pace, but a very high pace in the last quarter or two. And okay. and those cost of funds increase uh, really started to outpace what they could grab on the asset side. Okay. So, well, as a follow-up to that, kind of speaking of cost of funds and yield on assets and things like that, how fast does cost of funds typically catch up with yield of earning yield on earning assets? And has it yeah. been faster in this cycle than in prior cycles or how does that work? It, it has definitely been faster in this cycle, right? So again, historically, you look at a, a, a beta, which is a rate of change versus a market rate. The last cycle's cost of funds beta throughout the whole cycle was only 15%. Hmm. So basically, a, a simple way to think of that is for every 1% that market rates move, we'll say the Fed moved up 1%, cost of funds only went up 15 basis points. Hmm. We've seen a very big acceleration of the cost of funds beta in the last quarter or two because of that lag and drag effect kind of running out and just okay. the overall pressure on liquidity, deposits uh, in the industry. Okay. You know, generally people seem to think the Fed is getting close to ending the current tightening cycle. What are financial institutions doing to prepare for that with regards to things like deposit rates, terms, durations on investments, loan rates, things like that? Yeah, that's a great question, Larry. You know, we, we don't know where the ultimate peak in rates is, right? And, and financial institutions, especially community financial institutions, they're not hedge funds, right? They don't need to make a wholesale bet one way or another that mm -hmm. rates are going to do this or rates are going to do that. Having said that, we can't put the blinders on when it comes to interest rates. We need to have a fundamental idea how, you know, are we pretty close to the peak in rates? And it, and it feels like we are. The market would signal that and so forth, but with balance sheets. So what, what we're seeing is on, on the asset side, seeing a lot of institutions implement floors within their loans mm -hmm. um, and, and, and increasing those floors, um, maybe lengthening the term of reset or the reset date on some of those variable rate loans or loans that have an opportunity to reset, um, maybe longer term fixed rate loans. Another thing you're starting to hear more and more of that is probably newer is prepayment penalties. Mm. Institutions putting in prepayment penalties on their on their loans, thinking, hey, in one, two, three years, whatever the time frame is, if rates are two or 300 basis points lower than, than where they are today, we want to get compensated for that. Yeah. And, and so you're hearing a lot of that with, with the bond portfolios. A, a pretty simple strategy there is extend duration which can be challenging given the unrealized losses in bond portfolios that a lot of institutions have today. It's kind of counterintuitive, but yeah. if you think that rates are going to fall, extending duration and, and kind of increasing call protection and, and lockout structures of certain securities does add falling rate protection. And then on the liability side, simply put what you're seeing, Larry, is you're seeing CD specials and wholesale funding being put on the balance sheets very short. Mm -hmm. They're reducing duration on liabilities and trying to be a little bit more liability sensitive in anticipation for falling rates in the short term. Okay. Um, is that causing that inverted yield curve? 
Well, you know, the inverted yield curve, I mean, obviously, I don't think the financial institutions are, are, are you know, causing the curve to get inverted. There's obviously yeah. trillions and trillions of dollars in the treasury market. It's the biggest market in the world. But what's happening with the inverted yield curve and why we have an inverted yield curve is, I always explain it like this. The front end of the yield curve is going to more closely monitor the Fed and what the Fed funds rate's doing. Right, you look at the one-month Treasury bill, the three-month Treasury bill. It's at or near that five and a quarter upper bound funds rate that we have today. The two years a little bit more finicky. It's it's gonna ebb and flow pretty close to what the Fed's doing. But if the market thinks in one to two years the Fed's going to be cutting rates, you're going to see a two-year lower than the current level of the Fed funds rate. And then the further you go out in the curve the seven-year, the 10-year, the 30-year, that's going to be even the market's longer-term expectation for okay. growth and inflation. So the 10-year, which gets talked a lot about in the news and financial mm-hmm. markets, that's what's given us that inverted curve. Okay. That's the market saying, we're, we're okay with taking a lower yield than we can get on the front end of the curve because we still think this is an attractive yield for the long term. Okay. Right? So- that's really what's given us the inverted yield curve oh. and, and and what's really made the inverted yield curve kind of a, a, a somewhat of a scary uh, thing in past because it's always been a really good predictor of recessions. And that's just the market kind of saying, hey, we think the longer term outlook for the economy and inflation is lower than kind of the short term. Okay. You know, you mentioned unrealized losses on investment mm-hmm. portfolios. Um what are regulators thinking about that and what are they, how are they responding to that and why? Yeah, they're, um, you know, they don't love them. Um, <laughs> and, and this was, I, I don't want to say this conversation is done cause it's not done, mm-hmm. but this is something that really gained steam second quarter, third quarter of last year when you were really seeing the fed being very aggressive with rates, longer term rates, such as the 10 year were really starting to increase, um, but unrealized losses, it's its a function of owning a security, right? You buy a fixed income security. If rates go up, the value of that security goes down okay. and vice versa. Rates go down, the value of the security goes up. So it does work both ways. But regulators concern, if I had to boil it down to really two things, one is securities are generally seen as a source of liquidity or liquid asset. Okay. Well, if the unrealized losses get too severe, the cost of realizing those losses could be too much for an institution, right? Mm -hmm. Having to sell securities in a pinch at a deep loss directly impacts earnings and potentially capital. So that's one thing that they're concerned about, that institutions could be locked out from tapping some of that on-balance sheet liquidity. And second... The other concern is is there's certain um, contingent liquidity sources, such as the Federal Home Loan Bank. They have regulations that basically say, if your losses get too low to where it turns your tangible equity capital negative, then you have some various um, you know, stipulations and, and, and restrictions from a borrowing standpoint. But good news is that has really affected a pretty small percentage of institutions. Okay. Um, during a the the recent webinar you did for us, you mentioned the bank term funding program. Mm-hmm. What are the advantages of that program for a financial institution that is considering it? 
Yeah, great question. So two key advantages there. One is the collateral that you pledge for that is valued at par. Okay, so let me expand upon that a little bit. So the collateral that is accepted for the bank term funding program is investments or bonds. Now, there's not every bond in every portfolio is going to be eligible, but you're looking at treasuries, agencies, agency-backed, mortgage-backed securities, CMOs, commercial mortgage-backed securities, things that have that government wrapper. But even if those are at an unrealized loss or something below par value, which a lot are in today's environment, you can still get par as the collateral value. So you can get up to 100 cents on the dollar for all of those securities. So that's a huge advantage. The other huge advantage is you can prepay that one-year term advance at any point in time with no penalty. Wow. So if rate, if you borrow today for 12 months, three months from now, six months from now, nine months from now, you can prepay that if, if it's advantageous for you, <laughs> either from a rate standpoint, or maybe you just don't need the borrowing anymore because you had some excess liquidity come in. Okay. Um, and just to follow up to that, just yeah. popped into my head, the, if they're not charging a prepayment, if there is no prepayment penalty on the bank term funding program and rates fall, and let's say you borrow on Friday and rates go down significant enough for you to prepay and reborrow at a, at a lower rate the next week, why don't, it seems like a lot of hassle to me. It seems like <laughs> a lot of paperwork, I guess. Um, yeah. why don't they just make it? variable on the downside and fixed on the upside. It just feels like it's yeah. been structured differently. Is that a valid question? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you got to remember though, I, I think kind of kind of back to what I said, There's there would be more than one reason to prepay mm. a, um, a borrowing from the bank oh. funding program. One reason would be refinancing. To, to right. your point, Larry, uh, that's a great point. Like, why would they not make it variable to the downside? However, let's say for some odd reason, you have a, a large loan payoff of, of $5 million mm-hmm. and, and you're, you don't plan on needing that cash liquidity for some other part of your balance sheet. You may opt to go pay off that borrowing and reduce uh, the, the liability um, from the bank term funding program. So it... Okay. From a re, you know, I, I, your point is very valid from a refinancing standpoint, but mm. from an overall liquidity uh, need standpoint, you may not need that additional borrowing. So Got therefore, it. you could prepay it. Yep. Got it. Could the could the bank term funding program borrowing could that mitigate the risk of unrealized losses? Yes, absolutely, and I think that's exactly why it was created. It was created in in early March of this year. When Silicon Valley Bank failed and, and the Signature Bank uh, failed as well, and if you look at Silicon Valley Bank's balance sheet, they were a 42 loan to deposit ratio shop, which wow. from, a, from an analysis standpoint, that's not very loaned up. No, so They had a lot of what we would call liquid assets. However, they had a longer duration portfolio, more interest rate risk in the portfolio. Those unrealized losses were much greater than the average community institution. So when they had to go liquidate some of those investments, they had large realized losses that impacted earnings. And therefore, it also spooked investors, depositors, mm-hmm. and everybody kind of knows the story from there, yeah. kind of spurred that runoff. But yes, absolutely, that it's, it's a big factor that collateral valuation at par okay. allows you to borrow against that collateral without having to sell it 
from a source of liquidity standpoint. Hmm. Okay. Makes sense. Too bad it wasn't there beforehand, I suppose. <laughs> well, yeah. It, yeah <laughs> it, 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 was, it wasn't needed until it wasn't, right? Exactly. Until it was. Um, one more question, then we'll wrap up the podcast here. Um, deposits increased dramatically through the COVID years. Um, has that trend slowed down and are financial institutions seeing most of these deposits as hot money or core? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the the <laughs> stimulus programs are, are, are largely over, right? I mean, pretty mm -hmm. much all of them are over. So we, we saw stimulus programs all over the place. We, you know, I don't have to recap all those, but you know, PPP, direct payments, things like that. So that we saw just record levels of deposit growth right. for several years. And then now we're not. We're seeing when you look at true core deposit growth, it, it, it is negative um, as, as a collective industry. Now, of course, some institutions are, are able to gather deposits, maybe albeit at a cost, and some are not. So, yeah, you're definitely seeing core deposit growth down. And, and when you really dive into it, a lot of the growth in balance sheets is being driven either from, like you said, hot money or wholesale funding such as home loan advances or brokered deposits or bank term funding or any other sort of uh, wholesale funding sources. So that's where a lot of the additional growth is coming from. Okay. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please check out our complimentary webinar titled Interest Rate Risk Management Today, featuring ALCO expert Dale Scheller. You can also find links to check out the Baker Group's website, our LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and blog. Before I close the podcast, I'd like to thank our bank association partners, Dale Scheller, The Baker Group, and you, the listener. Until next time, thank you.